OPN Ask an Angel podcasts are conversations with global angel investors and venture capitalists. We explore how to invest, understanding investment strategies, and approaches to due diligence. Join us and learn what it takes to be a startup or what it takes to invest in the next great company. Welcome. Thank you very much for joining us today, Cristobal. Very excited to have you on. Um, and uh, today, the way we like to start, we go right at it, but uh, I'd love to learn a little bit more about your background, kind of where you've come from. And I know it's pretty extensive, uh, but uh, throw a little bit about that uh, and then kind of where you're at today. And then one thing about you, no one will know. Yeah. So, uh, so the, the first thing is I've been an entrepreneur for most of my life since I was 17 years old. I started off selling vacuum cleaners, right? And I did that because I was extremely shy and I thought that call calling people and selling vacuum cleaners would be pretty hard and that would make me break out. So it thankfully worked, right? It made me be much more social and, uh, that's how I got started. Then I did all sorts of things. I had a, a video game, uh, uh, coin-based company. Then I had a nightclub, uh, and then I practiced law for a few years. And that's where I figured out that I was much better doing being an entrepreneur than, than being a lawyer. And I want to get back to that. So I decided to go to business school thinking that there was this thing called the internet at the time. And this was the late nineties, right? And everybody was talking about venture capital. And I thought I was going to go to business school and people were going to be offering me jobs for doing venture capital left and right. So when I got there, I said that that's not the case. Nobody recruits for venture capital or nobody used to recruit for venture capital. So I came out of business school, I did typical business school thing, did consulting, then corporate jobs, and basically forgot about doing venture capital, right? And then about 10 years ago, I started a company, uh, which we sold off. And then I started a second company, which I sold my, my stake to, to my partners. And that's where I re-met venture capitalists. And I thought, hey, this is what I want to do all along. So it might be a good point to, to jump back. So that's how I got started. Awesome. Well, we're going to dive more into how it's working and all that good stuff. But one thing about you that nobody would know. Mm. Uh, I think more than someone telling that nobody would know is something that people, once they know it clicks for them, it's uh, how much reading I do, right? I typically read between 60 and 70 books a year. Uh, I rarely am without a book, right? No matter where I'm going, I always have a book close to hand, but I love reading, right? And, and people usually, once I tell them, they say, yeah, it makes sense that you do that. <laughs> you have the personality for that. <laughs> yeah, I love that. I've never actually calculated how many books I read, but I love that uh, if that's the case. I, I'm the same. I love content. Just take it in as much as I can everywhere, all vehicles. But that's good. Yeah. I love that. Great. It, it uh, allows you to bury your head and get into something else. And I can have about 20 books going, but it's all good. As long as I'm able to jump in and get a different experience. I think it probably matches the same on, on your side. Yeah, that and also uh, I, I used to do a lot of news reading, right? Or news consumption. Yeah. And I've stopped doing that. Uh, I think books allow you to have a much more longer term perspective, right? And, and get rid really of a lot of noise, right? Because if you're just looking at news, you know, everything changes every five minutes, right? They have to give you a new headline. So I think you never get into any deep content, right? You just... Uh, Big, uh, little, little stuff. And I think that does not good. Yeah. You cannot, you can't always follow along the whole storyline from beginning to end. It's very yeah. choppy. You're only getting uh, tidbits of information and then you think the world's warped because you never got the 12 stories <laughs> prior that really matched up to why this says what it does. 
Um, and that's the unfortunate part of news, right? Uh, and then uh, you figure out that three years have gone by and very few little things of, of actual uh, importance happened, right? And you were worried about 24 things in one, one day, right? So it really puts things in perspective. I like it. That's very true. That's very true. Well, I, I'm going to have to go back to your background because one, I find it fascinating, all the great things you've done. But the one that obviously stands out the most is Enron. So I have to ask, you were there at the year that Enron went down? <laughs> yeah. So How much of a part did you play in this? I'm just kidding. What, uh, <laughs> how much did you know, see, hear? I'm just fascinated because you've been so, the first person I've got to ask this question to because I've so learned pretty interesting so much on it. In the sense that you realize if a couple of things had gone differently, Enron would now be like a poster child company, right? Like everybody would love Enron, right? but it didn't go right. Uh, I started actually working as a lawyer for them as an outside general counsel uh, yeah. in Mexico when they were starting their operations in, in the country. And I was fascinated by them because they were incredibly competitive and incredibly cutting edge, right? Uh, for example, we had, we had different Enron entities as clients, right? And I wasn't allowed to share anything with another entity, right? And that was just like extreme competition, like really Darwinian, right? So I, I, was, I was really uh, amazed by them. And so then when I decided to go to business school and I asked them for a, for a recommendation letter, they said, hey, so what are you going to do after that? And I said, I don't know, but I'm sure I'm not going to go back to law, right? I said, hey, we would love to really this, this different kind of uh, background. So we'd love to have you aboard. So how, how, why, why don't you come back and work for us? So they gave me this offer where they would pay for my first year. I would go back for the summer and then they would pay for my second year, right? Depending on how well I did on the summer. So that summer was the last summer of Enron. Right? So, so I didn't get the second year check. Uh, but by the time I went there for the summer, it was really, it was super clear that things were going to go overboard, right? Like when I, when I started, I think it was the first week of June, 2001, and the stock price was around $27. And then by the time I finished the, at the end of August, it was around $11, right? So it was already like one third of when it came in, right? But you see all, all these sort of things, like the boss of my boss, he went to jail, right? So, uh, there was this one assignment I had where I had to check the marketing desk with the risk desk and the contracts they had between them. And I figured out this whole presentation. I went to see my boss's boss, which is the one that went down to jail. And I started doing this presentation and about through slide five, he says, you know what? Stop it. We, we don't want to look at this. You know, we'll look at this in private. We, we don't want you both. <laughs> so so yeah, it, was, it was a weird. And then after the, the, the general thing, so I was, I didn't have a full-time job, right? So I was going to go out of business school and didn't have anywhere to go back to. So, and I, and every interview happened would just happen with you, right? Like, People didn't care about my, my resume. They just want to talk about Enron. Right? So I would end up interviewing and say, are you going to ask me anything about myself? No, no, no. Sorry. We're out of time. So it even became difficult to get a job because of that. <laughs> well, Cristobal, we're about done now. Thanks for your time. That was good. Appreciate uh, learning Thank about Enron. <laughs> oh, that's crazy. But I can understand that too, because when it comes down to it, people aren't used to being part of such a big witch hunt that, you know, was done intentionally and needed to be done. And it's, Pretty uh, amazing how a Ponzi scheme like that was able to make its way as far and as long as it did. But it's interesting because in all of the things that you've done from the legal side and getting into the VC side and obviously your entrepreneurial stuff, I think there's obviously got to be some strong learnings that you've taken from that Enron experience. You, you know, you were pitching to people that eventually ended up going places where they won't be going and talked about anymore. But <laughs> Uh, because of that, there's a risk factor and your role was based around mitigating risk. 
So, and now throughout time, you've worked on different startups. How much of that really sits in the forefront of when you're building a company or when you're working with startups that you're mitigating the risk or the unknowns that they're not sharing to you? Because I, I see this now when I'm working with a company and they're like, we're not having a board. And I'm like, what's going on here? Why don't you want a board? Or they're saying, well, I can't share that information. I'm like, why? What, what's so secretive about this information? I'm an investor in your company. I need to know. So I'm not even part of anything like this on the extreme that you have. So to me, I'm questioning when I can't get information. I'm assuming you must be, as a lawyer, you must be really strongly uh, opposed to anybody that's not opening the doors when you're coming in to talk to them. So, I mean, what, at the stage that we invest, which is pretty early, there's really not that much objective information you can look at, right? Rather than bank accounts and maybe some legal papers, right? Yep. So I, I think our job as, as VCs is much more around psychological stuff, right? Like really getting into people's motivations, values, why you're doing this and not doing something else, uh, where they see themselves in five years. And I think that the two biggest lessons for me from Enron were, one was around talent, right? Like, ta- like Enron took it to extreme where everybody had to have, you know, like three degrees, right? Or, or, to and three MBAs and maybe you know a PhD and and you do realize there's a there's a marginal return on, on education right not everybody has to, can be a superstar there's not a job for everyone a superstar right uh, that was one thing right so you need talent but you need the right talent at the right place that, that's there's not just let's get a bunch of superstars and see what what comes out I think that doesn't work out and then the other thing which everyone was coupled with was the talent thing. And then they also had these super short-term incentives, right? Like nobody was cared about long-term, right? It didn't make any difference if a company made money five years from now. It was all about the next quarter, right? And, and getting to those numbers. So a superstar Enron was one that had these multiple jobs where he had keyed on the short-term numbers, right? Nobody cared what happened after that. And that's something that's completely antithetical to what we do in VC, right? In VC, we're always thinking about 10, 20 years from now, right? Uh, you know, in VC, all the value is terminal value. So, so there's really nothing interesting coming in the next two years. And I think that's that's really different, right? And that's something I always worry about. Like, how, what's this company going to look like in 10 years, right? Uh, are these people going to stay here for the time that it takes to build something meaningful, right? Or they want to cash out at the first value they have, right? Uh, I think it's, it's very different incentives from what a typical investor would have, right? For what a VC looks at. So to, to, co- to go on to that talent side, and, and I wholeheartedly agree that, it, you know, a lot of companies that do go after the talent pool, they do tend to build bigger, faster, sharper companies because they are working with uh, a high caliber of uh, educated brains, if you want to use that kind of term for it. Um, but there's probably a place for people that work hard and there's a place for brains. I'm sure you can figure out what that balance is in the model you've built. So one thing that really interests me is the short-term gains that you're talking about here, because how much does that affect a company? Like when you're going in and putting money into a company, are you looking at incentive packages and saying, Hey, I think this is the wrong incentive package. Why don't you put something like this in? Because you're also trying to build growth as well in these companies, right? So in order to get those, the startups don't tend to have that understanding. So they're going to be looking for you um, to say, Hey, you know, here's some ways that you can incentivize do you again look at these take your past learning and say you know what this might be a better model that'll get a better longer outterm uh, longer outcome that's going to benefit everybody versus these short plays that might actually create a bigger problem inside your company in the years to come 
So I think that's a great point about, about doing VC investing is that it's such a people's game, right? Uh, there's very little financial things we do here, right? Like there's not a lot of math involved. It's more thinking about the right people, the right attitude, the right ethic around. And, and one thing I enjoy most if, is helping companies build these management teams, right? And when you bring in someone, you really look at, is this person really a believer in the vision or are they doing this just to buy their CV, right? And going to go to work for Uber or Amazon or wherever, right? And that's, I think that's something that's always at the back of my mind, right? Like, is this person really believing in what we're building or are they just here because they want to check off that they've worked at a startup, right? A well-funded startup. And that's something you, you always look at, right? Uh, so I think it, it's also very difficult for founders. Usually founders are one-time founders, right? It's very rare to find repeat founders. And it's the first time they're building a team. It's the first time they have the money to to pay this team. Uh, so they do need a lot of, of outside of outside help, and and that's what we will try, uh, what I try to, to get involved with. And when you when you do come in and help with these um, management teams and the build up, do you have some criteria that you look for? You mentioned one, obviously, that they're not here for a short short time, or they're not here to pad their CV. Uh, so are you looking for more people that have just worked in startup space? and saying, hey, you know what? I agree, go after this person. They've been in startups quite a bit because they get what it takes. They probably lost some money. They probably lost some hours of sleep. They get it. Or are you like saying, you know what? Go poach that guy from uh, um, the Bank of Canada. Yeah, he'd be a great fit. Who cares? Pay him what he needs and get him in here. Like, is that, how do you guys uh, associate to that? So I think, I don't know how it's in Canada, but in Latin America, there's not that many people with startup experience, right? So if you were just going to recruit from that pool, it would be a, pretty small pool, right? Uh, and also you see that there tends to be a lot of job jumpers that are within that pool, right? Like they just like they just like new shiny toys, right? So as, as soon as a startup raises some money, they kind of jump there, right? So I, I don't think it's the greatest fit. I'm much more inclined towards looking for the person that you really have to sell into the idea of the company, right? Uh, like you said, someone who comes from the Bank of Canada or, or has worked at American Express or PepsiCo, you know, they, they've really... You know, they put the hours, they know what it's like to be sitting behind the desk eight hours a day and, and have this shitty boss. And you, you see that they, those people will appreciate and work harder for you because they know the difference, right? That they know what it's like to be build, part of something you're building as uh, opposed to be just one more number in the payroll. So how do you mitigate that risk for them? Because I think that was always one of my fears when I started was that I didn't want to poach anybody that hadn't experienced it because this was early in my earlier years of building companies is that I always had this fear that if I couldn't make payroll and I, this whole family was dependent on me, I was like, man, I can't handle that stress. I need somebody that's done this before. Because if I, if I come to you and tell you, hey, I'm going to need three more weeks to pay you, and you're like, what? Man, my family's not going to eat this week. I'll be like, oh, my God. <laughs> so, that's a, so it's still, I think there's a lot of still uh, of prejudice against joining a startup in Latin America, right? People say, you know, have a nice job. I get paid well. I know I'm going to get paid every month. Uh, why would I do this, right? So it, it's even, it, it kind of turns into being counterintuitive that the people that are worried about it, you automatically know they're not good for it, right? Because, you know, if you're going to be worried about this, this is definitely not a right fit, right? You really want the people that are saying, hey, you know, I want to give it a try and I'll see where it goes, right? It's something that I've, I want to do for years. I've never had the, the guts to do. Maybe this is the right time. So that, those are the ones that you want to roll with, right? They're the ones that really want, are willing to take the risk. I think if someone has any reservations about joining a startup, I think it's not a good fit. No, that makes sense. And now taking this lawyer background that you have, you must have a really good sense of 
how to build out a lot of these great contracts that are a little bit more sound, uh, even from an investment standpoint. Are there any recommendations you give to startups uh, when they are early on and they're hiring people into their company? Like everybody's Sorry. like, here, take some equity and here, I'll pay you all this money. Like, is there anything that you say, you know, here's a better way of doing this? Well, the first thing I always say is don't save money on lawyers, right? Like, that's, that's not where you want to be saving money, right? Because your, your uncle does family laws, he might not be the best person to represent your company uh, formation, right? So, so I think it's one area where people don't see the value until the problems shows up, right? Yep. But getting sound structure from the beginning, getting sound label contracts, those things really work out in the end, right? Uh, especially if you're building something that's going to grow big, right? If it's going to go bankrupt in two years, who cares, right? But if it's something going to maybe, because people tend to, wor to worry a lot about things that are not worth anything, and then when they're worth a billion dollars, they don't think about it, right? So I think it's better to worry early, right? When, when you can still tackle these things. So uh, I try to not be a lawyer because I haven't practiced law for 20 years, but I do try to remind them of where the, the danger zones are, right? Like you should be worried about this thing. You should care about this thing. Uh, that, for example, one thing which I, we don't care about, right? Like any, any time as one of our co-investors start, starts, uh, you know, negotiating dividends, right? When are we going to pay dividends, right? I know that's something that I really don't care about, right? If we ever pay dividends, we've made the wrong investment, right? This, this is not what we're in for. So you see that kind of things that, that maybe for someone that hasn't done this before becomes very important, you know, that's just not, not worth your while. It's a rare, it's very rare to get um, dividend payments. I, I agree. Um, I have, we have invested in one company that pay dividends and everybody was going crazy about it. Um, and when uh, we had the discussion and walked through it all, we understood the logic. They were trying to get just a small select group of people to invest, benefit them so that they would then bring in other investors, other value. Okay. And they were trying to use that. And they were like, no, we're making this happen. This is why we're doing this. And uh, after trying to say, no, use this for marketing, use this for this. We just accepted it. It was so small, but it was just the fact that these guys were just really good guys that really understood their business model and they built it in. But I do agree that it does seem very um, different when you have investors saying, I want to get paid dividends. Yeah. Because <laughs> that means you're trying to drain the business when the business needs every penny they can keep at this very moment. Uh, so that does become or, a little shocking. Or I think maybe, I think Canada is probably most, much more sophisticated than Latin America, right? In Latin America still Venture capital is a very strange asset class, right? Because you don't own whatever you're investing in. You don't have cash flows, right? And it's not liquid, right? So it, it goes against everything people are usually used to investing. So, so it's, it's really, so for them, not having nothing, a cash flow is like, wait, when are we going to start getting paid out of this? And hopefully never, right? Hopefully at the end, you're going to get a big check and that's it. It's very common though, just in, in reference to that, What's going on in Latin America and, and in North America, it is very similar in the sense that uh, only in the recent years, you're seeing a big push for venture capital is to come out. There's more funds coming now, now than ever before. But the knowledge understanding is pretty uh, different because yeah. you still have a small asset class of people that understand these types of assets. So they don't all invest and I think it was something like there's only 600,000 people in the United States that are um, accredited investors or have made an investment in a startup. 
So it's very small compared to the massive size and compared to Canada as well. So because it's so small, you're always educating people on how that process works. So at the end of the day, there's a million different types of deals that are being structured every day because there is that much indifference between people understanding what is the right way or what is a practical way um, versus how do I make sure that my wallet's getting money put back into it if I'm putting all this money out. So people treat it like a mutual fund. They think that if I put money in, I should be able to take it out anytime. And, you know, that's not the concept. And you have to keep explaining that uh, because, you know, everybody sees Uber went public or these guys went, they're like, well, how do I not get into those? Well, that's not the same thing. And that started 15 years ago, not last week. So there's, there is a learning curve to all of this. Yeah. And and that's something actually, what I like about VC the most is that it's very well aligned in that almost anything worthwhile is long-term in like VC, right? Whether it be educating investors, like you said, maybe that person you educate today is going to call you up in eight years and say, hey, I finally decided to invest in a VC fund and I want to be you, right? Uh, and so, and, and there's also this, this part where there's a lot of going, of giving back that you don't know if you're ever going to get back or not, but you really don't care, right? So even if, if they don't invest in me and I get to help someone that's going to get a check because of what I, this conversation I had with an investor, it's always really, really meaningful, right? It's, it's, I think it's the most least zero-sum game you'll ever see, right? Because really you're creating wealth uh, all around, whether it be financial wealth, whether it be educational wealth, whether it be health wealth, you know, it's, it's, it's all around. Agreed. No, very well said. Uh, so just to go back just a, a quick second to the, the whole side around uh, the employees and how you can help build out this team, uh, on the contract side to this or how you would structure this, is there any pointers that you can give to early stage companies when they are going out? You said, you know, don't reduce their cost to lawyers, you know, put the right money in. Uh, is that going and getting HR help or is that uh, like, is there certain things that you guys would look for? Because like you said, you're trying to mitigate costs when you're a startup, yeah. but team is number one. It's the most important thing for any investor, but any startup that's going to get anywhere. Is there any recommendations that you would give that would say, you know, take a look at these five things. They're going to really help you hone in on talent and getting your business where it needs to be. And you need to do that in the first 12 months of your business, or you can might as well just walk away and build something else. So so that's a great question. I think maybe not for a super early stage startup, right? But at a pretty early stage, I think the sooner you can get someone on board that can help you with recruiting talent, the better off you are, right? You realize that it's such a core component of what you're building that if you don't have have someone thinking 24 hours per day about who you're bringing in and really talking to people, you're always going to be running behind, right? You never have enough pipeline of of talent around you. So I think getting someone that's doing recruiting full-time as soon as you can afford it, it's a godsend, right? Uh, I think that's really, really helpful. I think most of the other, like even the CFO, uh, really for most of the time, what a company needs is more of a treasurer, right? Like than a CFO, right? You need someone that makes sure that there's enough money to pay at the end of the month, right? And that's about it. You don't think about debt structure or things like that. So, so a CFO sounds nice, but it's most likely going to be just doing the accounts, right? Uh, I think it's it depends a lot on the on the business. If it's something that, and you can build a very big business that's a sales team oriented business, you need to bring in salespeople, right? And really have the right salespeople that can that can really make the difference, right? And pay them as well as you can, right? I mean, if they get paid better than the CEO, so be it, right? But they're really creating the, the company. Uh, so that's a, a typical mistake I see is 
And that's something I mean, I think more of an idiosyncrasy here in Latin America that CEOs or founders, they feel like they have to be paid the most, right? Like, and that's usually the perfect recipe for not getting enough talent, right? Because there's going to be people, like we said, like maybe the one person worked at Toronto Dominion or whatever, and they got paid very well. They're not going to jump ship for half their salary, right? Uh, so either you pay them with equity or you're paying with salary, but it's very common for the best companies to see that the CEO or the founder is not the best paid person, right? They're, they're really, they're literally sacrificing today for tomorrow, right? They, they know that they don't need to be paid well in salary, but because of what they're building, they're going to be very successful down the road. And you also see that in general, right? The, the best entrepreneurs who we see for VC investing, right? Not, not in general, but the best entrepreneurs for VC investing are those that financial rewards are a byproduct of what they're building, right? They're not in for them to make money, right? They know that if they're successful, they're going to make a lot of money. But that's not what they're thinking about all the time. Uh, if you see someone thinking about it all the time, maybe they're starting a company for another reason, no? right? Maybe they don't have a job and they, they just want to get employed. Uh, but if they want to build something, they're not thinking about, about the money. That's a, that's a very uh, big point on the, the CEO doesn't have to be the highest paid player in the business because especially early on, they should just be enough to keep the lights on and focusing on the talent that's going to get their business off the ground. And I think that that is massive. Um, I wouldn't say it's news, but it is. It could be a headline. We could put that up on the <laughs> podcast and we release it because it really does make a big difference because one, it also controls your cash flow, And two, it ensures that you're putting the money in all of the brain power that's going to build and get this business moving forward. You're already going to be there. You're not going anywhere as the founder. Your whole job is to grow this business. So why not put the money where the money is going to drive the business faster? And, and I think that's brilliant. I agree in that even if you were only to be able to make one question to a, to a founder, and that's a, the one question where you decide if you're going to go deeper or not, is how much is he getting paid, right? Uh, if, if they're getting paid market, you know they're not founders, right? They just built a company to have their job, right? They're not about the other thing. So I, I think that's like one completely binary question, right? Yes or no. Either you, you're getting paid well and you're not a founder or you're sacrificing because you know you're doing something for the wrong road. I'm adding that to my list of questions when I ask a founder, even though I beat them up regardless on this, but that's going to be part of the question. I love that. Um, so now you, and you, you, you're, you've got some core people that you're really going to drive and support inside this business. Um, what's, what's ways that you look at incentivizing these teams so that they do build for long-term because, you know, not everybody's a fit in three years from now. So what kind of things can founders do that, will help their teams grow and get to that series A uh, race that makes sense for you as an investor. So, so I think that the most important thing is figuring out what's the series A going to look like, right? In the sense that what am I going to be selling at that point and build back from that, right? So I don't know, I want to get to X amount of clients, X amount of retention, X amount of whatever. And what do I need to get there? Right. And going back, on those numbers, you can figure out which positions within the organization are going to help you drive those those metrics. Right? And the people that are going to be driving those metrics, I'd say pay them as much performance compensation as you can, right? Because they're really building a company, right? Uh, it can be deferred performance compensation or whatever you want to make it, but it shouldn't be insane for someone that, for example, there's a company we invested in that they're not doing about a million dollars a month in, in revenues, right? And one of the key people they want they want to pay them half a million dollars a year, right? For a startup that's only seed round. Right? But if he gets to the numbers that are going to pay for that, it's going to be well underpaid. <laughs> so it makes a lot of sense. It's, it's not the absolute number. It's regard to what 
you're getting that number, right? So, and I'm a big, big fan of performance pay. Maybe this goes back to Enron. I think Enron had the right idea with the wrong execution. Uh, I, I think performance pay is great, right? Uh, it's not a, it's not possible for everyone in the team. So I think you have to make ways for some people that are whose job is not as easily to, to to measure, to get some of that uh, of that metrics for the for the like if the company does well, X amount gets gets to you, right, or something like that. But as as clear as you can make it. And and one lesson I learned about interviewing salespeople, right? Uh, the one question you have to ask an inter- uh, salesperson is to do percentages, right? So ask them what's twelve percent of X or what's twelve. If they don't, if they cannot do that, they've never sold anything in their lives because salespeople live on commission, and they know every time they sell something, what percent they're getting, they're getting back to them. So you, you really have to figure out the, the the right incentives for each role in the company, whether it be the developer, whether it be the finance person. Uh, each one has their own buttons. I like that. It's a good uh, trick question, which shouldn't be a trick <laughs> question if you do this every day. Yeah. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. You might as well uh, call them out right away and make it happen. So uh, that's good. Good advice. Uh, so now you're kind of working with these companies, you've structured them, you're helping their team size, you're helping them with metrics on how to better understand their business. They're going to a series A, they've kind of circled back, figured out where they want to be and how they're going to get there. What role do you guys play inside of this as they go to a series A? Do you become kind of uh, set back and just kind of watch the ship move forward? Or you guys take an aggressive position and keep helping all the way up to that Series A? So uh, I think this goes back to what's our philosophy for investing, right? Uh, I'm very upfront in saying that I think I know very little about investing or, or I'm not surely not the most uh, knowledgeable person about it. But what I do know about is how to build companies, right? And it's something I really enjoy. Right? So the way I see it is founders I invest in they let me work with them because I give them money, right? So that's the excuse that they're getting me into the table, right? But once I'm in the table, I don't care about metrics or financial metrics, right? I care about really building a company. So we're very hands-on investors and we we offer a whole many of what we can do, right? I think that the most comprehensive is we try to the companies we invest in to figure out if there is something they're already doing as a team, we can get involved as a team member, right? Not Not... We don't want them to have the Jaguar meeting just to give us feedback. We want to participate in the actual meeting. So whether it be a staff meeting, a sales meeting, a KPI meeting, whatever they do, uh, OKR meeting, we would like to participate in that. And for the first probably five or six sessions, we're only going to sit there and, and, and listen, right? Maybe by the seventh session, we have an internal intelligent question to, to ask about it. And we start to get really raw information about the company and what's happening. And that's how we think we really help. Uh, founders, right? You know, being a founder is probably one of the loneliest jobs in the world because you can never have a down day, right? Either with your investors or with your employees or with your co-founders or with your clients, right? You always have to be booming, right? Uh, so I think we really, founders really appreciate that we're, we are that, uh, I would say, uh, approachable per- person that they can come back with a, a bad news or the bad ideas or, and not be afraid of saying it, right? Uh, and that I think that really builds builds for the wrong one. As you were saying, we usually get a board seat. If we don't get one, we don't care, right? It's more about really being a part of the of the of the whole idea than which role we pay we play, right? And it's typical for as as companies mature and they get into larger series, you have more of these big funds that they do require to get a board seat that they require to have X things. You know, we're okay about not being a part of that, right? Uh, 
we understand we we, we want the, the effort to succeed and if we can help them by not being there we're always up for that now that makes sense and uh, uh, well shared on that we help you get to here and we're also happy to you know maybe not get off the bus we'll hold on to the window on the outside and watch <laughs> and learn but we're not going to be uh, we don't have to be inside the bus the whole time so that, yeah. that's uh there's nothing wrong with that for sure uh so now you take a look at this business that's gone out of your hands. It's going Series A. Do you keep investing or do you just kind of let them? I think that's the billion-dollar question, right? Uh, follow-ons are, I think they're dumbed down as, as, as people say, yeah, you got to double down on your winners, right? The more we look at it, the less sense it makes for us. And, and for us, I mean a small fund, right? Hmm. And the reason is that there's such a big jump between races nowadays, right? Like you would raise a serious seed and maybe $3 million valuation, and then series A is at 20, right? So that additional capital you put into the company really has a much less effect on, on your total returns, right? It's really diluted. So in our case, and, and that's going to our numbers, right? The companies that have done well, we've had exits, almost all the money comes from the first check, right? So because of our size, it doesn't make sense to do those follow-ons, right? Maybe we're managing $400 million. It might make sense, right? For us, we're $25 million fund. Uh, we put in half a million dollar checks. We're fine with doing the first check and just letting that multiply, right? But I think that, that follow-ons, the problem with follow-ons is how high is the sky, right? And Latin America, well, there's a lot of unicorns. It's still not the norm, right? There's still not that many. Uh, so you're somewhat capped on your, on your, on your, on your upside. Also the, the upside can happen, right? For, for example, we invested a new bank at a valuation of $3 billion, right? Which was huge, right? $3 billion was like, there's not a lot of companies that are worth that in all Latin America, right? let alone startups. Now the company is worth over 27 billion, right? And so while we did well in our first check, the second check we could have put in at 7 billion, right? And we thought, you know, it doesn't make sense. We're already in a three billion. That that, that that's going to be maybe we get a two x return on that one, and you know, it could have been a, a great return. So, I think as general rule, follow-ons for us are no no. But I do understand there's exceptions for that. For example, if you're going to put the third check or, or or going to the sixth round for Facebook, it would be a tremendous return, right? But those are far in between. And does that play into also your your time that you're looking at for the investment? So if you're saying that you want to exit by seven years or nine years, whatever that might be. So if you're going in at five years, you're only going to have two years of your money being in there. So maybe it doesn't have the same return. So you kind of keep those reinvestments up to one to three years. And then after that, you just kind of let it ride. It gets out of your hands because it's too high. Um, so, so that's another great question. Uh, and the truth, the honest truth is that we don't know because our first fund is a 2014 vintage. So it's still all around. Uh, our last check out of that fund was done in 2019. So it's uh, the fifth year. Uh, I imagine that when we reach the end, the there's companies that still have some, some way to go. We're either going to do an extension, maybe one or two years, and then either distribute the shares to the, to the investors or sell them in a secondary, right? Uh, but I think that shouldn't be the reason why we invest or not, right? I think that that would be playing chess when we shouldn't, right? We should just be worrying about making the best investments. And regarding timing, you know, we have a term limit on where we can invest. So we can invest in the first five years of the fund. So that should provide enough of a, culture, of a cushion for us to, to be able to get returns. 
I like that uh, the idea too that uh, you can go secondary market or just distribute the shares uh, up between the investors and they can decide what they want to do with them at that point. Um, but uh, and is that a uh, do you do that as a purchase as well or do you just look at that as based on uh, like do you still keep a position even if you do distribute some of the shares just so that you're part of that or how do you how do you look at that as so a- we haven't got, we haven't done it yet and so I don't have a an objective answer I think. So I think because these funds are, you know, they're, they have a close term, we need to get some closure on them, right? Uh, I think ideally, and as we progress, at one point we would have, some, we should have some sort of eternal or, or or never ending pool of capital, which can take these positions when when because some of these companies, like I said, for example, Mercado Libre, right, which is the largest internet company in Latin America, they 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 went public at six hundred million dollars, right, in two in two thousand seven, and that was like a great exit, right. The company is now around 90 billion, right? So those 600 million from the original check in 2007, 14 years later, is like nothing, right? It's like a rounding mistake or a bad day trading. So, you know, if you had kept those shares for, for 14 years, you would have done very, very well, right? So I would imagine there's, as all this of our funds progress and some of the companies we invested in do well, I think there should be some opportunity for us to take those shares for the long term and really stay with them, right? And like, Warren Buffett says, you know, holding period should be forever, right? I like that. I, I like holding things for a, a longer duration of what I believe in them. And, you know, sometimes they take a kick in the pants and you're like, ah, oh, maybe I should have got rid of them. <laughs> but again, it's a longer term play, right? So if you're keeping, and let's just use a number of 20%, distribute everything else, but you keep 20%, I think that that could be just your own carry, and you hold yep. that until whenever. But I think that's where the upside becomes that your risk analysis says, hey, you know what? There's a bigger opportunity here. So this makes sense for us to distribute this and, and hold on to, to our portions so that we can benefit this in five, 10 years and, and then exit at a 30 multiple again on top of what you already exited everybody else on. So I guess it's just part of your risk model. Yeah, I agree. So the last question I'm going to have in this, in this risk model is again, we go back to the risk side from Enron and all the things that you've kind of gone through. How much of the business analysis that you do when you're making that initial investment into a company, how much of that risk factor is in your brain? Is it 90% risk, 20% uh, open-ended, I'm just going to just jump at this? Or do you really have a real strong risk characteristic that you've built through that says, if I don't have these 10 things, we're not making an investment? And it's really important to you because you've just seen too many of these things fail or too many ups and downs. And this is what you look for. So I think there's like two types of companies, right? There's those companies where you've seen a lot of similar teams try to execute. So you have a lot of, of information about what can go wrong. So it's easier to just go through them and say, well, this didn't work because of this, because of this, because of this, right? But that's not usually the case, right? That's maybe one out of every 10 companies we see, right? The other nine are things that nobody's doing, right? And those I think those I think are much harder to, to analyze because there's no reference to whether they can go well or not. So in those, I think we go to more, so we have like four things we, we look at when we invest. The number one thing is team, like I said, and, and obviously everybody says I invest in great founders. I think that's no, no surprise, but I think the best founders we've, we've had luck to, to partner with, they bring in people that are better or as good as them, right? And, and they're obsessed about that from day one. So I think we did, we saw a lot of investments in good founders that didn't have this obsession. And you can see in them companies, right? Their companies 
they grew to a certain size and never got beyond that, right? The companies that keep growing and growing and growing is because they're always renewing talent, right? And they're always looking, even five years down the road, maybe they're talking, talking with this American Express person that they're not going to be able to hire in maybe in the next two years, but they're already making that connection because when they get the money in two years, you're going to bring them in, right? Or there's a role for them. So, so the first thing is team, and I think that's like the one that trumps it all. The second thing is market. Uh, we used to think that Latin America might be different from the US in the sense that you wouldn't have a lot of billion dollar companies. You have a lot of, we have a lot of $100 million companies, right? And that probably out of your portfolio, maybe there would be a couple of write-offs, but most companies would do okay, right? Uh, and venture capital is, is not like that anywhere, right? Uh, venture capital has very few winners, a lot of losers, and you have to be huge winners, right? So now we worry a lot more about markets. And in that sense, one thing we learned about markets is it used to be that we just thought about the potential of the market from what we saw, right? But there's some markets where there's an invisible ceiling to those markets, right? Because there's nothing that you can do as a company or as an investor that can grow that market beyond what it's going to be by natural causes, right? And, and, and a, a typical case of this is one company we invested in that does home cleaning services, right? Uh, which is Latin America, you know, there's a lot of domestic service, so there's a lot of, it's very ingrained in the culture. But even with that, there's very few people that are willing to hire someone through the internet, right? And that's not going to change no matter how much money we invest in Facebook or Google, it's just the ceiling, right? So we, we didn't see that. We saw that it's just a huge market and we didn't see that the ceiling was going to be there and it was going to grow organically, right? So, so you have to be, be careful about those sort of markets, right? Which, where it seems to be very huge, but the actual market once you get into the, the mechanical uh, way of, of how it works, you'll see it's not that big, right? Uh, that's one another thing. Uh, then unit economics, we're obsessed about unit economics. We really think about them night and day. And it comes down to just, are you getting any money back from what you put into to, to, to what you sell, right? Uh, we think that the idea of selling dollars for 90 cents doesn't make a lot of sense. It's been successful sometimes on the road, but it's rarely the case, right? So there has to be a very strong conviction why why something is going to work and, and change economics. Usually economics might change a little bit down the road, but they're never going to flip, right? You're not going to start making... Uh, so that's something we, we really put a lot of attention to. And then the other thing is that the product market fit, right? And for us, product market fit comes down to basically, are people willing to pay for this and are they repeating, right? And that's for us product market fit, right? If someone is paying for this, then you have actual customers. And if those customers are staying around, then you have really good customers, right? Uh, if you don't have that, you know, it's a tough sell for us to think that you're going to get that with your money. I like it. Are they willing to pay and repeat? Yeah. It's big. It's big. Uh, and of course, unit economics, huge. Um, I like the idea about the market and sharing that invisible ceiling. I think a lot of us forget about this ceiling part and just think yeah. that sky's the limit all the time. Um, and it isn't always the case. It's probably different by jurisdiction, areas, countries. I'm sure there's a lot of things. Demographics can change really quickly. So I guess a lot of things can really uh, create more barriers than good, right? Yeah. And of course, founders and team are the number one uh, driver before any investment. So awesome. Uh, okay. So we're going to jump into uh, a couple more segments here. But the, the one question I have is, in all the time you've been doing this over the better part of 20 years that you've been working in and out of startups and all the great things that you've seen, your own companies you've been building, is there a heartfelt story that you have where you just couldn't believe this company made it through? And it could be one of your own stories and you just saw this and you were like blown away by what it showed that this entrepreneur had to do as 
to be an entrepreneur, this is what it takes. And it's just one of those stories that you have to tell. So I think this goes back to a little bit what, how, how we picture the role of the VC, right? Uh, and this was because we had another investor in the same cap table and that investor had the complete different idea, right? So in our first board meeting, the guy starts explaining that the way he sees it, he's like the co-pilot of the founders, right? And if he sees the founders are going to, you know, uh, go into a mountain, he's going to grab the controls, move the plane and save them, right? And I was looking at him like saying, that's exactly how we don't see it, right? We might be the, 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 the control tower downstairs, right? And say, hey, by the way, there's a mountain coming your way. But if you're going to crash into it, it's going to be you, right? You're going to be the one dying. It's not, it's not us. We're, we're down here and we're, we're, we're cheering for you, but it's not us, right? And I think that that's a big misconception about, about what venture capitalists do, right? We're not, we don't do management. We don't do, we, we try and give you as good advice as we can and, and, and be as supportive as we can, right? But we don't solve problems, right? Unfortunately, that's not our role. And in that sense, this same company, uh, they had this business model where the internet clients didn't make sense because they needed a huge volume for them to, to be big. Uh, they were running out of money. They had maybe three months left of money in, 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 the, in, in, the, in the bank. And they want to be able to actually start lending themselves, right? There was a there was a business that was a comparison for uh for how for car loans, right? And and against our better judgment, we said, you know, I think it makes no sense for you to start lending. You have any money, right? We might as well, you know, just call it quits and 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 over. You know, and thankfully, uh, one thing we do is we always speak our mind. But once we've done that, and if the founder wants to do the opposite thing, we're right behind them, right? We we've spoken our, our piece and we're why would you what you want to do? So they said, you know, we don't agree. We think that we can really make this work. Uh, they were able to find the money, start lending, and that was like four years ago, right? And and now that company is raising their Series A uh, at a huge multiple where we invested. But I don't really care much about the return of that company. I think it's going to be a great a great return for us. But the really big thing is what I saw the entrepreneurs do and relationship we've built with them, right? Uh, because I know for one thing we have. Uh, allies that are going to be with us forever, right? They're going to be partners and they're going to be recommending us to any founder they ever made in their lives, right? Because we we really stood by them and, you know, we might not have agreed with them, but they pulled through, right? And that wasn't because of us, right? That was in spite of us, which is even better. No, I like that. They, they almost had to prove you wrong. And uh, yeah. that's, that's- I'm happy of, they did, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, benefited you and will benefit you in the outcome. But that's a, yeah. that's a great story. And you're right. It's sometimes- Hearing what you don't want to hear can help push you over the line to make the right choices to go in the right direction. No, I love it. That's great. And I do like the analogy you shared about, uh, you know, we're not in the airplane with you. We're in the radio tower telling you that there's a mountain coming and you need to steer around it. And that's really, I think, 100%, not just what a, a VC is. That's what an angel VC, anyone that's providing money should be offering is uh, the foresight to be able to help them with problems, uh, potential issues, the upsides and everything. And they have to do it from the radio tower. They're not doing yeah. it from inside the plane because I think that that creates more uh, issues uh, and more reason for that I, startup to not share. And going back to that story, I mean, it's, all, it's also obvious that the information they were seeing in the cockpit wasn't the same information I was seeing downstairs, right? So they saw something that I couldn't see and they had faith in that. So they went with it. 
Yeah, and I think that's great. And that's what you need. And maybe if you were in the cockpit, you may have seen it as well. But maybe you would have been a disbeliever because the mountain was in front of you, but you thought you had no problem getting – you were going to hit it and they could see over. So I guess it, it all depends on the positioning and what you know of the business. So uh, great analogy. Um, all right, we're going to jump into some quick rapid-fire questions. Great. All right. What is your favorite part of investing? Oh, uh, I think this is you. So – I think in, in opposition to most people in the world, every day I speak to people who love what they do, right? And I think that's really unique, right? Uh, usually when you're in a corporate job, half people are going to meet, hate their job, but they're just for the pay, right? Here is probably the opposite, right? Most people don't like what they're getting paid, but they love what they're doing, right? And I think that's, that's something that I'm privileged to do. Amazing. I love it. Uh, how many companies do you invest in per year? So we don't have a set number. Uh, I do see that it's become a lot more uh, as, as both we as a fund involved and, and the ecosystem involves. So for example, this year between January and, our, and now we've invested in eight companies, right? Uh, that's a lot. So in the six months, six, eight companies, a lot. We used to tend to invest maybe in five, six companies a year. So now it's getting a lot more rapid. So you're almost double the average. So that's good. Yeah. Yeah. I hope the quality as well. <laughs> Well, it sounds like it. you're uh, becoming very, very good at this. So this is good. Uh, any specific, specific verticals you focus on? So the truth is, so the idea is no, we don't focus on in any verticals. Uh, we try to think about the, the, the business bottom up. So if it's a good business, we'll look at it no matter what they do, right? If you want to look at it at sectors we like, we invest a lot in, fintech e-commerce marketplaces e-commerce marketplace because that's what we knew as entrepreneurs both my partner and i before and fintech because the first few investments we did that did well were fintech investments right so we sort of started this virtual cycle where those founders recommend us to other founders and as we see more fintech companies we're better at analyzing them so it's just very natural right uh aside from that just the general principles we don't invest in things we think uh, we wouldn't like us or our children to, to have or, or play with, right? Uh, we, we tend to think about this thing about vitamins and, and aspirins, right? We invest in things that make you better or take away some pain. If they don't do that, that's not something we're interested in, right? So we don't do any social media or any gaming, things like that. Okay. I like it. Uh, any specific things that you look like look for from a due diligence perspective? Like paperwork, you, whatever. So paperwork, I, I think paperwork, at the stage we invest in, we do very light paperwork, if any, right? Uh, I think it's much more about really calibrating, like I said, the incentives or why the motivation, why someone's doing this, right? So one thing, and, we, and this is something we're, we're always thinking about, like how can we improve how we evaluate founders, right? Uh, and one of the, the newest questions I've come up with is the best founders... Uh, we work with or, or, or that are successful in the company, they have some role model they look up to and they they sort of have this inner bug about making it right for them, right? So one question I now always ask founders is, who's the relative you most admire and why, right? And if they don't come up with someone that's really good, right? We're not investing, right? It's like, it's not a good sign, right? You really have to have very clear, like, who do you aspire to be like, right? If that's not clear in your mind, it's hard for me to believe you're going to be a company. Oh, that's good. And you said a relative, right? 
a relative. Yeah, because it has to be someone. Because it's, if someone you saw in the movies, or you can say Warren Buffett, you know, that's very trivial, right? Yeah. But you can say, I don't know, my grandmother who came from Syria or wherever, and and she built this, or that's really potent, right? Like you actually knew the person and you know the story, right? I like that. It's a great question. Great question. Uh, okay, uh, how long does it take you timeline wise to make an investment from the day you start talking to the day you make an investment? So it used to be, <laughs> we used to be pretty standard. I'd say we take we took between four and eight weeks to make a decision. Uh, I think it doesn't make sense to do that much time. So we've streamlined now between two and six weeks, right? Uh, okay. The shortest time we've done is one week, right? So we've been able to do that. Uh, I hope that we are able at one point to make all investments in one week, right? And I really, and I make the investment decision, right? Because the paperwork can take anywhere, right? It depends a lot on the company, where they're at, uh, their needs, whatever. But to be able to say yes or no, uh, we would I'd love to be able to do that in one to two weeks, right? What we do is we're always very, very clear on if there's a next step or not, right? So as soon as we see there's a no, we cut, we, we don't cut off communication, but we tell the founders, right? Like we're not gonna invest, right? Uh, so, you know, don't send us anything, any more stuff. Don't, because uh, that's something that happens a lot, right? Uh, founders are being dragged along, right? And, and and they're not clear where they stand. Maybe the fa- maybe the investor doesn't actually have a fund and they're just using them as bait to raise a fund. Uh, and, and we hate that, right? That really, that's really not good for, for, for founders. They, they typically don't have a great idea about VCs. They don't like us a lot. So why, why help them with that, yeah. with that idea? Right? Why fuel it anymore, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Interesting. All right. Uh, do you lead rounds? We don't care about leading or following. Uh, I mean, the only difference for us is how much work we do, right? When we lead, we do a lot more work. When we follow, we just take terms and, you know, get into the round. Okay. Uh, do you do follow on investments and do you have a percentage of that? So in the first one, we did have a certain percentage for follow ons. Like I said, we noticed that for us, it doesn't make a lot of sense financially wise. We're very upfront about that with founders. So we, when we invest, we tell them we don't do follow-ons or we would rarely, very rarely do one. And we explain why, right? Uh, okay. So they have that whenever they go see another investor and they say, why some they're not, well, then they always said that they were not going to do follow-ons, right? Uh, some founders understand it, some founders don't, but that's, that's what it is. And you mentioned that you do take board seats. So yeah. the last question is, are there any preferred terms that you like? Is it pref shares, common shares? You're okay with safe? No, so we always do preferred shares, right? Uh, we always do preferred shares. I mean, in a perfect world, we do equity preferred shares, right? Uh, it's more and more common that people just do safes, right? And until they do a big enough round, they do, and the big enough round allows something more than $10 million, right? They do, they do equity. Uh, we typically do, so the things we always ask for, and this is interesting uh, for most founders is, so we do the preferred, the preferred shares. We have a liquidity for preference of 1x, right? We never ask more for that, more than that. We ask for participation rights, so, so pro rata rights for the next round. And then one thing that we learned is we always ask for a put option to sell our shares for $1, right? Back to the founders. Right? Uh, and the reason for this is liquidation for a company in Latin America can take a long time, right? And we're not in the, in the business of liquidating companies, right? So if you go into a liquidation process, we better, you know, just give you back your shares and deal with it than for us to say. And also, fiduciary, we cannot give you more money than what we're legally required to, right? So if we want to help you, we cannot call an RFPs to give you money just to help with the liquidation, right? So it's easier to just, you know, give you back the shares for $1 and, you know, sorry, it didn't work out, right? Interesting. 
I like that. Makes things a little easier and cleaner, even though it's not an easy process. Yeah, and also because of some fiscal regulation in some countries, you can take that write-off in your own personal statements. So it also helps when you do that. Right? Yeah, that makes sense. All right, we're just going to finish up with some last personal questions. So what's your favorite sports team? Oh, that's a tough one. So there's three, there's three sports I really love. Soccer is one of them. American football is one of them. And baseball, right? And in each one I have a... So in football, it's a local team called Cruz Azul in Mexico. Uh, they've played nine championship games in the last nine years, and they've only won one, right? So they're, they're perennial losers right? in the championship <laughs> game, right? So, so I like them. And I think that I share that with... My baseball team is the Cuffs, the Chicago Cuffs. I love the Cubs and they've always been losers. So I, I think there's something about the underdogs that I really like, right? Like the underdogs, really yeah. And then my football team is the New York Giants. Uh, and they're, they're probably the one that have given me the most satisfaction because they've been champions the most. <laughs> yeah. Those are the three teams I love. Very cool. I like it. Um, favorite movie and what character would you play in the movie? Oh, that's a tough one. So my favorite movie is Gallipoli. I don't know if you've ever seen it. What is it? Gallipoli. Gallipoli? It's uh, Mel Gibson's, one of his first movies. Okay. And it's about the battle in Turkey of Gallipoli in the World War One. Yeah, I, I think, think I've seen that. that. Yeah, a long time ago. And it's a really good movie. Uh, and it's about these two friends that go into war and one of them dies, right? And I, I don't know, I probably would like to play the Mel Gibson character, right? Because he's surprised. <laughs> Who knows? All right. It's a really good movie. I'm going to look into this movie. I might watch it again. If I haven't seen it, I'll give you my review, but I like that. Very cool. Um, all right. Uh, what is your superpower? Hmm. Another great question. Uh, so I think self-awareness would be my superpower, right? Uh, in the sense that I, I think I realize how much I don't know, right? And I don't understand, right? And I don't try to play know it all, right? Uh, I'm not afraid of saying I don't know. And I'm saying about saying, you know, I'm not going to understand that, right? And I think that that makes it easier for everyone around, right? <laughs> it does. No, I like that. That's awesome. Well, as I normally say and do, uh, Christoval, fantastic interview. I loved it. It was great. I learned a lot. I took a lot of notes, as I always do. I can't <laughs> help it. I'm like an old bookworm just writing away. Uh, but I learned a lot and there's uh, a lot of great things that I'm sure the audience is going to love this. Um, uh, there's so many things I could dive back into, but again, thank you very much for all your insights today. Super appreciated. And the way we like to kind of end our shows is that we like to give you the last word. So anything that you want to say to the investors or to the startups, I turn the floor over to you to share, but again, thank you very much. So, so I think for this, for the startup founders, right. Uh, it's a typical question to ask, should I start a company, right? Or should I go into entrepreneurship? And I think the answer is, unless it's someone that gets something that gets you up awake at night or, you know, bothers you while you're in the shower or bothers you when you're at the gym and you're just going to get it out of your, of your mind, I don't think it's worthwhile for anyone to start a company, right? I think you really have to get it like a virus, right? And you cannot get it rid of it. If you don't have that, I think you're better off in a corporate job. <laughs> All right. I like that. Brilliant. All right, again, Cristobal, thank you very much for that. Well, thank you, Jeff. So that was, uh, Cristobal was fantastic. So many great pieces of information. Uh, 
just around the talent side and hiring the right people and what type of people to look for, you know, great advice there. I, I really uh, appreciate how, uh, you know, you're going to hire an A team. You're going to look for 18 people. Uh, you're going to spend the money and the CEO should just reduce their salary and focus on making sure their team is getting paid. Uh, I love that. I think that that really makes a big emphasis on ensuring that your company has growth and stability and pay the people that are going to keep crushing it. Um, and then of course, just different ways that they looked at the unit economics, the market, the founding team, um, and then market fit, you know, great ways to support the business. And the biggest one was, you know, as VCs and angels, we're just in the radio tower and you guys are in the plane running and we're just going to let you know there's mountains and everything around you. Uh, but you got to steer the boat, steer the plane and make it happen. So again, appreciate all of his time and all the great uh, insights. Um, share, like, comment. Looking forward to seeing you guys on the next podcast. Thank you.